people are going to disagree with you. People already disagree with you. Uh, let me start with your spouse, if you're married. John Gottman, one of the uh, foremost uh, marriage researchers, empirical marriage researchers in uh, the world, uh, says that 69% of problems in a marriage are perpetual, which means they're just ongoing. Like there are just, there's, there's, that kind of implies that 70% of things between a husband and, the wi- and, and their wife are perpetual problems that they disagree with that are never going to actually be the same. Some of the married couples look at each other. <laughs> All right, that There is a sense in which the way that you do business and the way that your spouse does business, you're just different. And, and you could be married for like 30 years and there's still ways that you just, a lot of ways where you just do things differently. You're kind of, in one sense, you could say you're fundamentally, every married person is fundamentally incompatible with their spouse if it means you have to agree on the way that you actually do life. You're going to disagree, you know, and that's one of the realities. Now, how you handle the disagreement, that's what John Gottman's really good at and, and, and the fact that we don't even have time today, right, but relationships actually, I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, but relationships don't actually go because people agree on things relationships go because people move toward each other and have relationship with one another and then they're able to manage the things that they don't have 100% agreement in underneath. You know, you might think that your way is the best way, but you're married to someone who disagrees with you. Has anyone ever had that experience? It's like the world would go a lot better if it just operated like me, but it doesn't, right? And you married someone who disagrees with you about a whole bunch of uh, details. Your culture disagrees with you. If you want to be a Christian, you want to call yourself someone who follows Jesus, you have automatically put yourself at odds with your culture. Just by default. Like that's just straight out. We could just say that. But not entirely, right? Because there's actually remnants in culture that are kind of, that align with Scripture and with God's principles, right? There's there's remnants of the Judeo-Christian kind of ethic in our culture. So you can actually see some some alignment that can actually go on between being a Christian and what happens in our culture. And a good example of this, I think, is um, the, uh, the verse, uh, the command in the Ten Commandments, don't murder. All right? Uh, our culture thinks it's good not to murder. And we think it's good not to murder. Like, there's some kind of good alignment there, right? But some of you, even as I say that, are kind of going, well, okay, well they kind of do, right? Because if you start pressing into the details of killing you start to get a few areas that aren't entirely in alignment. Because we might agree with our culture about murder and disagree with our culture about abortion and euthanasia. Now, I'm not necessarily calling them murder. I'm not even making a comment on that. I'm just saying that those kind of things are are, uh, inconsistencies for us. And, And it actually draws us to this point where we realise our culture, that our culture actually believes in objective values in one sense. If you do anything to harm children, everyone's saying it's wrong to harm children and I'm saying it's wrong to harm children. But that's even curious, right? Because our culture's actually been on a bit of a crusade over the last decade or two to say that nothing is actually objectively wrong, that everyone makes up their own moral values. Now we disagree with that, we say you don't get to do that. <laughs> you don't get to make up your own stuff. There's things that are actually right and things that are wrong. Now, you turn up in a culture and you say that there are things that are right and things that are wrong when the prevailing view has been that you make up your own rules. That's going to create trouble for you. You're just going to have a whole bunch of people who disagree with you. And probably, at some level, you're going to be up for a beating. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like you just you cut across that one and you're going to be up for a beating. People in Australia seem pretty happy for the church to stay in its place. But they're less happy when the church actually says some stuff that cuts across the prevailing winds, so to speak. You say some of that stuff, man, it's going to wind up. You're going to find out there are a lot of people that disagree with you. So here's a question for you. What do you do when you and culture disagree? Because you do. Most people in Toowoomba are not in church this morning. 
They're not. Most people in church this morning are not in church, sorry, most people in Toowoomba are not in church this morning because they disagree with you about how important church is. So what do you do with that? On top of this, there's other people who disagree with you, all right? There's other groups of people who disagree with you. We haven't even got to religions and belief systems. What about, what about Buddhism? They disagree with you. There's a lot of people that follow Buddhism in the world. I mean, strictly speaking, Buddhists don't even believe in God. They disagree with you. What about Baha'i? Have you seen that sign on the way up from Brisbane? Baha'i, there's a, there's a sign on the left-hand side just past the server there. It says, uh, one God, many messengers. This is the old thing, you know. The Baha'is kind of subscribe to this parable that, about um, that religion's like a bunch of different people touching an elephant, all right? And everyone thinks it looks different, but it's all part of the same thing. They're kind of saying yeah, no one can actually know what, who God is in its entirety, obviously, except for the Baha'is. And their point of view actually commits suicide. Like they're saying that everyone else, one God, many messengers, everyone else has only got a piece of it, but we've got a lot of it because we know that everyone, when you put them all together, you get an elephant. You can look up that parable. It commits suicide because they're actually saying that no one can know all of it, but they're saying they know all of it and it, and it just doesn't work. But they disagree. That sign on the way up from Brisbane disagrees with you. Because we do not, if you're a Christian, we do not believe one God, many messages the way the Baha'is do. What about Islam? They disagree with us. Even though Jesus is in the Quran, they say that the Bible has been corrupted over centuries and that the Quran is the right one. They don't agree with you. They, they actually maintain that Jesus was brought down from the cross before he, he died. They think that we're wrong and we're deceived. How are you going? And that's not even to get going on the atheists, right? And the weird thing about atheists is they don't actually call themselves atheists anymore. Has anyone noticed that? They call themselves agnostics. You know what an agnostic is? An agnostic is a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or the nature of God. And I was reading this Courier-Mail article not that long ago about Israel Folau and this lady wrote in there that she's a committed agnostic. <laughs> I think that's funny. Because <laughs> they, 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 agnosticism is you can't actually know anything. But she's committed to not knowing anything. She knows that she can't know anything about God. It's weird, but that's, that's actually kind of the atheist thing, right? Atheists just think we're silly believing in God you know in in one sense let me help you out here I've, I've dug a big hole for you probably but let me help you out here in one sense to hold to anything means anything means that there's going to be a whole bunch of people that disagree with you anything the only way to not have a whole bunch of people disagreeing with you is to not hold to anything. And here's the irony, if you decide you're not going to hold to anything, you're actually in disagreement with all the people who think you should hold to something. Do you get what I'm saying? Like you, you just, you actually don't have an option in this world, if you hold to a position or you don't hold to a position, there's going to be a bunch of people who disagree with you. You know, you, you can't ultimately be Switzerland all the time and get away with no one disagreeing with you. If, you, if having people like you and agree with you is a key priority for you, then being a Christian is going to be a real problem for you. It just will be. You know, I, uh, I had, and I still have them, it's still a real temptation. I used to have very strong desires to be liked by people. And it's still, it's still in here. It's, uh, the Bible calls it fear of man. So consider for a moment the battleground for me when I feel like God calls me to stand up and preach. It's like there's two fully loaded freight trains on the same track heading in opposite directions toward each other, not away. 
You know, one of the realities of standing up and preaching and leading a church is that people don't always agree with you. And some of you, maybe even now, might, might be going, really, is, was this the best way to actually start this message? There's probably not a Sunday that goes by where there aren't some of you that disagree with the stuff that I've said. There's a few reasons why you could disagree. One is that I could be wrong. You could be wrong. Or it's an open-handed theological area where we can differ and still walk alongside one another. Some people think immersion, some people think sprinkling. Some old earth, some young earth. In a group this size, it's inevitable there's going to be disagreement. But here's the bottom line. When it comes to going to church and listening to a preacher, no one wants to go and listen to a preacher that flip-flops all over the place and doesn't have a point of view on stuff. I don't think. No one goes out to see someone like that. You just don't pay attention to them. You know, one of the things I say to people who preach in the project is you need to do your homework, you need to be as clear as you possibly can about what you're saying and why you think it's right and then you need to get up and you need to say it in a way that people need to listen to you. But people won't always agree with you, they'll disagree with you. And the bottom line is that people in church are actually pretty nice about it most of the time. They're pretty nice about their disagreement. But the reality is, the further you go outside of the four walls of the church, the more the disagreement can have some nasty kind of side effects. Unfortunately, even within the church, sometimes it's friendly fire that can, can be uh, some of the most painful. You know, when an ally turns on you, that's when it really hurts. And that's what I think we see in the life of uh, Jesus, is his allies and his closest people turning on him, even in the sense of the Jews. We see it in the early church, we see a bit of friendly fire. Now, why, why is it difficult? Well, one of the reasons why it's difficult is because the gospel is offensive. See, actually telling someone that they're wrong by its very nature, is actually offensive. To, to go up to someone and say, you need to submit yourself to the rule of Jesus and not run your own life and do your own thing anymore, that's offensive. That is genuinely offensive. It's a, offensive to the self's desire to rule oneself. But who knows that sometimes Christians can be offensive? <laughs> Have you ever seen that? So they just can be, Right? It's like you have an offensive message at some level, but you as a person are offensive to people. And I, I want to suggest to you today that you don't actually have to be offensive in your manner. You don't have to add your own offense to, uh, to the offensive nature of the gospel. You know, yeah, one of the things I think the vast disagreements in the world tell you is that there's much more going on than meets the eye. You know, and it also, another thing that it actually shows, I think, is that our culture actually doesn't run on facts most of the time. They think they do, and they think they run on science, but they actually don't run on science and facts most of the time. You know, my uh, doctoral study has been in the area of self-esteem, and I can tell you there was no scientific evidence that actually came out in support of the notion of self-esteem. It just mapped onto culture really well, and it mapped onto people's experience and it got a run, it got a political run. And it wasn't until the late 90s and the early 2000s that they actually did some scientific research and found out it was, it was not, there was a whole bunch of it that was really unhelpful and it didn't actually work. It did the opposite of what they said it was going to do. If you're in education, there's a, um, there's a theory in education called Gardner's Multiple Intelligences, which you may have heard of before. And, and that was never established scientifically when it first came out. It never was. Someone, they, someone found something that mapped on really well and people kind of went with it. And the other one, without going into it this morning, the other one that I think is worth a mention without going too far into it is, uh, is the whole gender dysphoria thing, people changing genders. Now, who, who do you hear in that whole movement at the moment who's actually quoting research about how helpful this is? They're just, they're just not quoting research. And in fact, there's research, a lot of, well, there's not a lot of research on it, but there's strong research that pushes in the other direction. 
You see, what tends to happen in our culture is um, find something that articulates the human experience well, that goes in the direction that you want to go, and then culture kind of seems to go for a bit of a run with it. I'm not saying that we're totally resistant to the uh, findings of science, but we're not as scientific as we might think. And we in the church are actually cut from a different cloth to that. We're, we're cut from a cloth where we, uh, we love and we serve someone who, we, who regularly cuts across us. That's, that's kind of how it rolls. Our God cuts across us. And as Christians, we welcome it most of the time. Don't you? Like you sit down and you read your Bible and what, what do you read? You read something and what you read cuts across you. And, and there's a part of us, even when we don't like it, that goes, this is good. We need to be cut across. We know it's for our, our good and we work to submit to it. But when we speak about this God who cuts across people, we're talking to people who actually don't want to submit to him, people who love other things and have other agendas that they're going after, and they will disagree with us. So what do you do when they disagree with you? So today we're going to look at the next section in Acts. And uh, the title of my message today is The Haters. All right? And that's a... Uh, some of you are singing that Taylor Swift song already. All right? For those who don't, are not familiar with the term the haters, a hater is a person who greatly dislikes a specified person or thing or there's someone who's negative or critical toward other people. So can you turn to uh, Acts chapter 4? We're going to read the first 22 verses. So just giving you a little bit of context here, Peter and John have just healed a guy who'd been crippled his whole life, over 40 years of age. We know that from verse 22. This crippled guy got laid at the beautiful gate every day. And I think that's just an amazing, uh, an amazing contrast, isn't it? I mean, this beautiful gate was apparently, according to Josephus, was a solid bronze gate uh, worth more than the gold or the silver-plated gates. Uh, imagine this sight, and I'm not in any way putting down people who are disabled, uh, but they're taking this guy who, in, in the sense of what a true human is, is not beautiful, and putting him in front of this beautiful gate. And so Peter and John come along, they heal the man and, uh, and restore his body, and, uh, and they end up going into uh, a description of what had actually happened and who Jesus was in the back end of Acts chapter 3. They call the people to repent. And uh, the next section that we're going to look at is in Acts 4, verse 1 to 22. Just pardon me. Verse 1. And as I was speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were in the temple precinct teaching about Jesus, who the Jews just killed, all right? Or organized to have Jesus killed. So you can see that this is a significant problem. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which has become which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognised that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened him, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In this passage, I think what we see is we see that people will disagree. We see that Jesus is your helper in those moments and that Jesus makes all the difference. Let's kick in. People will disagree. Have a look at verse 1 to 3 there. We just read it. What actually happens, the, the, uh, Peter and John are just healed the man. It's amazing. They're telling them the, the crowd about Jesus. The crowd comes to them. They're telling the crowd about Jesus and what happens? They, they get arrested. When you can imagine it in the temple, right? It's like the temple leaders were the ones who were meant to be doing the teaching. And here they are teaching about this uh, this renegade Jesus who's come in and turned things upside down. This new sect called Christianity. You know, it's like they sorted out the leader and now there's some followers who are still trumpeting his message. You know, you can see in verse 4 there, that uh, even though they, they, they actually got arrested, you can see that more people believed. And it looks like the number from uh, Acts chapter 2 has now grown to 5,000 people. And there's a little bit of a battle that's actually going on here. Is this new kind of Christian sect going to be something that's actually going to grow up within Judaism? Or is it going to be something that's going to run separate and grow in opposition to it? You know, the, 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 uh, the plan was always that the Jews would get the message first, but what are the Jews actually going to do with it? Well, you know what the Jews did with it? They did the same thing with it that, that they did to Jesus, right? They're in opposition. And Jesus told the disciples this was going to happen. Can you come to uh, John chapter 15? Let's flick over to John chapter 15 here. This is uh, starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done anything among, the, among them, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written... In their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Go down to chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when that hour, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now... When you sign up for Christianity, you sign up for this. This is like part of the package, right? This, and this is, the, this is the weird thing. Sometimes I think the church can do a bit of a bait and switch on people and just kind of go, yeah, you know what? It's all going to be blessings and it's all going to be great and, and not kind of mention verses like this as much, right? And just not be open about it. I mean, what's Jesus doing? He's going, yeah, you know what? They're going to beat up on me. And they don't like me because they want to do their own stuff. They want to follow their own ways. And if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you too. 
You know, it's good to consider the miracles and the great things that God wants to do and the things that he will do, but you just need to remember that there's going to be opposition. You know, this is the reality. I think that what Jesus says here is actually right where we sit in our culture at the moment. If you go along with stuff in our culture, you don't get trouble. Really, do you? Where the church is a bit silent and actually doesn't cut across culture, they don't really get any trouble. But way beside anyone who actually cuts against, against the cultural kind of wind and pushes against that. It's going to be on then. You know, why? Because we're living in a war zone. I talk about this pretty often, like we're just living in a war zone. And the bottom line, this is what I said earlier, there's way more going on than mere facts. You know, Ephesians tells us that you don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Like there's more going on than meets the eye. You know, (laughs) sometimes you can just think, all we need to do is just tell the truth. And it's going to be okay. But that that doesn't work a lot of the time. Have you noticed that? You know why? Because you know the truth and you don't follow it either. (laughs) Have you ever been in that situation where it's like, I actually know the truth about this, but I'm determined to go in that direction? You know, there's so much stuff. You can start at a personal level for people and you you can work more broadly out to the culture People just don't follow the facts and the truth that often. They do, but they don't that often. Have you ever had someone tell you something to your face and you know they're right, but you just couldn't admit it? You stubbornly hold to it despite the truth. Because there's more going on than just the truth. It's actually about what you love. Listen to this quote from Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley was an English writer and philosopher from 1894. He died in 1963, right? I'm not going to go into massive detail into this, but I'll just give you a a brief summary at the end of it. This is like, he was not a Christian man, okay? Let's just be clear about that, probably in the direction of being an atheist. Here's what Aldous Huxley uh, wrote. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned, with, uh, concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. And he's teeing up there and he's just kind of going, you know what, what you actually want to do is, is going to be critical in uh, your belief system. And listen to this. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Do you hear that? We believed that things didn't have meaning because it meant we could do whatever we wanted. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. You see that? His agenda for believing in, in a meaningless world, it wasn't just a facts-based thing. It was like we actually wanted to believe in a meaningless world because it meant that we could do whatever we wanted, especially sexually. And I think this is the way humanity operates. I think generally people receive truth that they agree with or or truth that supports what they worship and they love. I think the Jews were actually committed to a system that they were pursuing and just wanted to go after it. So what happens to you when people come up against you and they, they differ with you? What do you do? Well, you're not just dealing with theory at that point, are you? You're actually dealing with people's allegiances. You're dealing with what they love. And it's going to be a question of where do your loyalties lie? And it's not just going to be a question of other people's loyalties, but it's actually going to be a question of your loyalties when people come up and disagree with you. When you're under the pump, the way that you answer the question of where your loyalties lie determines the outcome of the conversation, right? And it's, the loyalties are basically this for Christians. When you get under the pump and people disagree with you is... Am I going to be loyal to Jesus or am I going to be loyal 
to myself. That's basically what it boils down to. Think about Peter and John. They've been arrested overnight. And I reckon Peter and John have actually got the opportunity to back off, to not be so offensive, and to just chill out a bit, right, and find a way to ride this thing out. Do like the federal politician thing, you know, where someone does something bad, they just get put on the back bench for 18 months. You know, just sit it out, and then once everyone's forgotten, we'll bring you back. That's what we'll do. And they probably had overnight to think about it. And I think one of the questions that they probably were thinking about, maybe, we don't know, is, is this question of loyalty. Are we, are we going to be true to Jesus? And I don't think there's any question for them that they're going to be true to Jesus. But that's the question, right? Are you going to be true? You know, Jesus made it clear, didn't he, in Luke chapter 9, that if anyone wants to come after him, they need to die to themselves and take up their cross and follow him. I remember uh, as a younger guy hearing this scripture quite often uh, from Luke 9 verse 26, uh, you probably know this one, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The attitude that Jesus has to you on judgment day is the attitude that you have toward him now. Ever been ashamed of him? Ever been in a precious situation where you're under the pump for being a Christian and you just wanted to ride it out? How'd you go? <laughs> Did you stand up for what you believed in? My, uh, my mum and dad are here today and uh, I didn't know they were going to be here but I'm going to tell this story. Um, my dad used to teach RI in my high school Right? And everyone in my high school, at Ballina State High School, everyone in my high school knew that my dad was a reverend. All right? And do you know what question I got asked time after time after time? Are you going to be a priest when you grow up? So I didn't know any difference between denominations. Are you going to be a priest when you grow up? Are you going to be a priest when you grow up, Peter? And I got so sick of it because I always said to him, no, I'm not going to be a priest when I grow up. By the time I went to uh, Sydney, I went to school down there and uh, Dad had a job in uh, the Presbyterian Church in the city and um, I got so sick of being asked if I was going to be a priest and, and just being put in these uh, situations. I, uh, I started telling students at school, like my, my friends at school, I said, I, what does your dad do? Well, he works in an office in the city. At one level, I, I continue that right through into uh, to uni, and it wasn't because I was embarrassed of my father. It, it just it just felt weird. Well, you just feel a bit weird being a Christian, right? And and at one level, you could kind of go, well, you can kind of understand that a bit. But at another level, you just go, that's actually pretty bad, right? Like, isn't isn't that what Jesus is talking about in Luke nine about being ashamed? If there's any consolation, if you've ever done that, if you've ever just kind of folded in a moment where you just needed to be open about something, you just need to know you're in some pretty good company. Not just because you're with me, but with the disciple Peter, right? You're in some pretty good company. But you do need to hear it that we just need to not be ashamed of Jesus. It is about loyalty. It can be daunting. Peter and John have been thrown in jail. They're on trial before all the heavies and the heavies ask them, by what power or by what name did you do this? And what's happening is what Jesus said was going to happen. In fact, maybe even what Jesus promised was going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Did you notice when we read that bit out of John before I actually skipped a bit? Did anyone notice it? I skipped a bit at the end of 15 and went to uh, the beginning of 16. 
if you've still got it open, um, John chapter, sorry, it was 18, I should say. Uh, John chapter 18. Have I got that right? 15, 16, sorry, I've got a, got a typo here. Who would have thought? 26 and 27 of John 15. What is that? But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness before you've been with, because you've been with me from the beginning. What's, what's Jesus organising? Well, Jesus knows that you're going to be under the pump. And he knows that you're actually, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you to stand up. So what's he actually going to do? In the middle of this section where he's talking about people hating you and wanting to persecute you and give you a hard time, he says, you're not going to be on your own. I'm going to give you a helper. <laughs> he gives you a provision to help you to actually get through it. You go to uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 8 to 12. You know what it says right at the start there, uh, in verse, uh, verse 8 there, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, dot, dot, dot. That's what Jesus promised, right? The Spirit would actually come along and be helpful. You know, and it's, they're going to need it, right? And look at what actually happens when the Spirit fills them up and helps them in their witness. They just grab like a 20-litre jerry can of petrol and just tip it on this fire, right? <laughs> Don't they? That's what they do. They say, well, you guys kill him. And this guy that you killed, Jesus, he's actually alive again now and he sorted this crippled guy out. From the frying pan into the fire, they did it to themselves. But before we just get too, far, too, too carried away with that, just hang with me in verse 8 there for a bit. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And you just need to know, you know Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts and I think what Luke's doing here is he's actually connecting you to something that he said in the book of Luke. And I'll put it up on the screen. Something Jesus said. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Listen to this. This will be not a really bad thing that we've just got to try and avoid. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And this... Here's a kicker. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. See, this being arrested is actually an opportunity to bear witness. Now what, I love this uh, line here um, in this verse, in verse 14 there. Um, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. What, what would that be? Well, you know what I reckon that is? That's anxiety. <laughs> Isn't that anxiety? Like there's a fearful thing that could actually happen out in front of you and you actually meditate beforehand about what you're actually going to do to sort that out. You think about a particular outcome and you work out a way to handle it before you get there. Now, if... If it was you and I, I don't know what you would do with this information with Jesus, from Jesus, right? I, I don't back myself on this one very much, right? Because if someone tells me that I'm going to get hands laid on me, I'm going to get persecuted, I'm going to be uh, kicked out of the synagogue, thrown in jail, brought before kings and governors, I'm probably going to be anxious about that. <laughs> It's, uh, have you ever had that? It's like, just don't tell me. Don't tell me what's coming. But here's, there's something masterful going on here, right? Because over and over in the scriptures, you know what the antidote to fear and anxiety is? The antidote to fear is always, 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 it's always trust. Always. Because the thing is, when, I don't know whether anyone knows this, but when you get, you get anxious and you try to control more stuff and then you realise there's more stuff that you've got to control that you didn't realise you had to try and control, so you get that stuff squared away and then the zoom lens goes out, oh, I've got to get all this stuff. And before long, usually about five seconds, you realise that there's way too many things for you to actually work out and meditate on to kind of control and it can break you. Or you can trust. 
And Jesus is saying here, he's going, I told you this was going to happen. And I told you this so that you'd just be able to be chilled. So you're going to, be, you're going to get arrested, you're going to be put on trial, and you're going to be under the pump, and you can be chilled. Why? Because I'm going to be coming through. And I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to inspire you, and I'm going to help you to speak really, really well. And folks, I, I want to say this to you this morning. God will not hang you out to dry. You hear me? He will not hang you out to dry. He knows that you're going to be under the pump sometimes. He knows there's going to be pressure moments for you. And he's going to be with you. He's going to fill you to be able to reply and reply well. Amen? There is a store of help for everyone who loves Jesus. And you're not alone in that moment. You know, there are some times, aren't there, like you can see with Peter and John here, that you're going to need to say some things that are actually not going to diffuse the situation. They're going to make it worse. But just be careful if you feel like God's leading you to do that all the time. <laughs> right? Some people are like that, right? It's just like we've got to do this all the time. We've got to stir people up and say offensive things to get people kind of off balance. I remember uh, teaching with a, uh, a colleague of mine and uh, loving the bits... And, but he used to just love an argument, right? So you just, you'd start having these conversations about something, he'd bring up something controversial, he'd say a whole bunch of really controversial things. Usually the way it would work is I'd get really annoyed and irritated with his point of views and at the end he'd say something like, I don't even agree with what I was saying, I just thought it'd be good to have an argument. And I'd, I'd suggest to you that if you feel like this is your ministry to the world, to stir things up all of the time, you probably just want to get some wisdom from some brothers and sisters about whether you're actually uh, filled with the Spirit and doing the Lord's work, all right? And the reason why is because if you look at the life of Jesus, he just didn't do that all the time. He did do it, and there were times where it was called for, but he just didn't do it all the time. People liked to hang out with him. They invited him to their wedding. The kids liked him. The sinners liked him. You know, he wasn't railing against people all the time. But I don't think that's our typical Australian problem. I think that's more the exception than the norm. I think the typical Australian thing is that, is that we're quiet. Have you uh, heard since, uh, have you heard this phrase, the quiet Australians? That's actually been uh, thrown around a little bit since the federal election. The quiet Australians are actually having a voice. Now, you know what I reckon Australians are like? Australians are like this. Australians are like this. They go, you can do whatever you want, right? Just don't get in my space. All right, you get in my space and I'm going to get wound up a bit at you and I'm going to have an opinion, but you can kind of, if you just stay out there, it'll be Okay. And I actually think one of the things that happened in the federal election campaign is I think the Labor Party got in people's space with some of their policies. And I think what you've actually got, what you've seen in the whole, and I'm not arguing for or against any of these, I'm just making the point about being in Australian space, you know, the whole controversy about Israel Folau and what he posted and the reaction that you've had from the quiet Australians is, is about this whole thing of getting inside someone's space. And you know the difficulty when you look at Jesus and when you look at the Gospels and you look at this passage today in Acts is Peter and John get inside the personal space of the religious people, don't they? And it's awkward because this is actually what the Gospel does. Jesus kind of gets up in your grill, doesn't he? It's like you read the Gospel of Mark, he's always getting in everyone's face. You know, in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 8, he says, who do the people say I am? And then the follow-up question is, well, who do you think I am? Kind of gets in their grill a bit. It's, it's kind of like one of those situations where, uh, if you think about it physically, um, you've got your own kind of personal space, and, and you know, you meet someone every now and then, and they're just like half a step just inside that space, and it's like, it's just really uncomfortable. This is, this is what the gospel's like. This is what Jesus is like. He just kind of takes that extra half a step inside the buffer zone, all right? And calls all of us to do that too. 
Now, that's, that's where trouble can happen with Australian people, right? You just get inside that buffer zone, inside their space, and that's when it can get a little bit loose. Here's the bottom line. You need Jesus to be a faithful witness to Jesus. That's the bottom line. You need Jesus to be a faithful witness to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus makes all the difference. Come back with me uh, in the story a bit. The healing. Who did that? Jesus. <laughs> Made all the difference for the man, didn't it? 40 plus years, crippled, laying every day at the beautiful gate, trying to get arms. Made all the difference. There was this undeniable miracle that the Jews could actually see, that they, that they knew they had to grapple with. What about Peter and John's testimony? You know, Peter and John get arrested and then they speak boldly. Who did that? Well, the Holy Spirit. And who's the Spirit? The Spirit, as Acts says, is the Spirit of Jesus. What did the um, authorities notice about the disciples? A beautiful uh, line there. They realised that these men had been with Jesus. Made all the difference, right? Jesus had rubbed off on it. They were uneducated, common men like Jesus. You know, John 7, 15 says, uh, The Jews therefore marvelled, saying, How is it that this man has learning, speaking of Jesus, when he has never studied? You got a couple of rookies in terms of academic training, and they're talking like Jesus. They've got insight like Jesus. They've got wisdom. They've got prophetic authority like Jesus. He'd rubbed off on it. Being close to Jesus makes all the difference, doesn't it? For the man who got healed, for the disciples giving testimony, the filling of the Spirit. Who knows what I'm talking about, that being close to Jesus makes all the difference? It does, right? Well, how do you be close to Jesus? You know, one way that you can be close to Jesus is to hang out with Him and to read the Bible and to talk to Him, to pray to, to depend upon him, to come to church, to sing when we sing worship songs, to look to him right in the middle of a precious situation where God would be calling you to bear witness to him. Look to him and look to his enabling and the spirit filling you. In so many other ways. Come with me in uh, Acts to uh, the last section there just have it open in front of you from verse 18 to 21 so 18 says uh, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus see it's this question of loyalty again they tell them don't talk to anyone anymore in Jesus' name now when you read it you know the rest of Acts right but when you read it, when I, when I read it, I thought, yeah, well, that's going to happen. That's the feel that you get, right? It's like, you guys need to be quiet. Yeah, right. So a crippled guy had been a cripple for over 40 years, gets healed, and it's because Jesus did some stuff. Yeah, like they're actually not going to talk to anyone else about Jesus. Like, that'd be crazy. They get arrested. They throw a bunch of fuel on the fire. What are the chances they're not going to do that again? But they push even further. If you have a look at that section there, um, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and we have heard. See, Christianity is an historical faith. It actually maintains that some things actually happen. And someone's denial, Peter or John's denial of those things happening doesn't actually mean that they didn't happen. You see, Jesus dying on a, on a cross was a literal historical event. And him being raised from the dead was an historical event. These are not kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of ideas. These are actual things. And this is what the disciples actually say. This is a real deal that actually happened. How can we not actually bear testimony to this? And in doing so, they lock in their allegiance to Jesus. 
You know, the crowd knew this crippled guy. He was there at the beautiful gate every day. Now he's walking. He's well beyond the age where he could recover on his own, which is the last verse 22 there. And everyone is praising God. And what we get a sense of is that the Jews and those who follow Jesus are going to ongoingly disagree with one another. And it has a bit of a feeling that this is only the beginning of the trouble. And the question is, uh, again, it's the same question for us, how are they going to stay strong? It's a question for us. As descendants of theirs in the faith, how will you stay strong? When the pressure comes for you, what will help you to stay loyal to Jesus? What will help you to fearlessly proclaim the message? Do you know the answer to that? It's the presence of Jesus in you by His Spirit that's going to help you to do that. And do you know something? If Jesus wasn't faithful to humanity when humanity was unfaithful to him, we wouldn't get the resource that we need to be faithful to him. You go back to uh, Jesus dying on the cross. What happened before that? He's in the high priest's house and Peter's within earshot and Peter's under the pump, isn't he? He's under the pump. You know this man. You know the story? Three times. The last one, a highly threatening, very buff servant girl. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? He blows it. He gets it all wrong. Do you know what, what, while that was happening for him, you know what was happening for Jesus? He was nailing it. He was nailing it. He nailed it one after the other, the whole way through. He didn't wilt once. Do you see that contrast? At the moment when there's someone who's wilting and flopping all over the place, denying Jesus, Jesus is staying faithful. And he's not just staying faithful to his father, he's staying faithful to Peter in that moment. Because you know something? If Jesus wilts and he caves Peter never ever gets the resource of the Holy Spirit to live inside of him to be able to stand up when he needs to stand up do you see that and unless Jesus was faithful to you when you were unfaithful to him when you were ashamed of him unless he actually goes the whole way through what he needed to go through you don't get the help that you need to be able to get it right (laughs) but now you do you have it you got the spirit and you can nail it now You have a resource and a power that's stronger and more significant than Peter had. Amen? And you can get it right now. And you can thank Jesus for it. (laughs) You can thank him for it because he kept trucking when humanity stopped. He succeeded where we failed. His staying true under the pump provided the way for you to stay true under the pump. Amen?